if we could just get everybody to kind of give up on what they want to see the government do and just come together, try to find ways to compromise and come together on what we want them to stop doing, I like to believe that we could really make a lot of progress, especially I think that this should be the role of libertarians in the world, is making friends with leftists and rightists, although I talk a lot of smack, sometimes I shouldn't. Um, we shouldn't be so sectarian. We should be friends and try to lead the left and the right. If they can't make libertarians out of them all, we should at least make anti-war people out of them all. And we should at least make anti-central banking people out of them all and anti-militarization of police people out of them all. Welcome back to the interview podcast from Millbank, South Dakota. This is Craig Weinberg. Theinterviewpodcast.org is our website where all the conversations are archived and where you can help support the show. We operate under the value for value model that says we provide the content, put it out to you with no strings attached. And if you get value out of the show, you decide what that value is. Go to theinterviewpodcast.org, click on the support button, send that value back our way so we can have more conversations like this everything is welcomed and much appreciated thank you all for your support today this guest actually comes at the recommendation of one of our supporters Stuart Tilma months ago sent a podcast to me and said you gotta check this guy out so I did he's the director of the Libertarian Institute editorial director of antiwar.com host of the Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio with more than 5,900 interviews under his belt. He's also the author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Enough already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And he's currently working on the book Provoked, How America Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Scott. Let's get right to it. What got you into the idea of starting to explore journalistically um, war and what it looks like? Hmm. Um, well, you know, I've pretty much always been a libertarian. I've never been any kind of left winger or right winger, although I've always been into um, ever since I was a kid, really. I guess I was always just interested in kind of left wing and right wing alternative takes on things. So, um, like the Birchers, one of the first book by the Birchers ever read was from the seventies and they're calling Nixon a pinko commie. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm from Austin where people are mostly Democrats, you know, yeah. and I'm going, Oh, that's weird. You know, but this guy, in fact, the guy who wrote that Gary Allen was really a libertarian. He was not much of a right winger for a Bircher. He was really a libertarian type himself, but it, you know, he was, there's a very compelling point there about Nixon as opposed to in the liberal imagination where he's the right wing boogeyman, he really was very much a center right Rockefeller Republican mm -hmm. type of a guy, not a, a right wing conservative or, you know, a lo lot of different things that right wing can mean. He really wasn't, you know, he really was actually very much sort of a center left guy. So there was a, or center right guy. And there, so there was a lot to those criticisms of him. And then, you know, I was raised in the Reagan era when, the government were just criminals. I mean, a bunch of those guys went to jail. 
Um, and they're selling weapons to the Ayatollah at the same time that they're selling weapons to Saddam Hussein to fight against him and all this stuff. And I just knew about all that even as a kid. Like that, none of that was very covert. Um, and I don't know when I first learned about Ronald Reagan being a dope pusher, but it was when I was very young, <laughs> I knew that at the same time that they were locking up poor people and especially black people for using cocaine, that the national government, the CIA itself was the number one supplier of cocaine in the United States of America. And that's not just in South LA, but that goes, you know, the Dixie Mafia. This was one of Bill Clinton's big connections was the CIA was running all this cocaine into Mena, Arkansas. And of course, you know, into Florida as well. And so the whole drug war at the expense of all these powerless people was being waged against people who are consuming what was being brought in by the very government that was locking them up. And I saw through that stuff like when I was still in junior high. How? I was just raised on that. How? What, what so, was it that, that allowed you, I guess, to uh, maybe peek behind the curtain or at least see through some of the propaganda? Um, well, I'll tell you a, a fun anecdote. I was just thinking about this the other day. Um. After eight years of Reagan and Bush, the Democrats were elected. And the slogan was, oh, this is the boy from hope. And from the <laughs> right. point of view of yeah. all of my left-wing teachers, Marketing. oh, he's a real yeah. liberal. He's so liberal. And, oh, we like him so much because he's not just sort of like a center-right Walter Mondale type. He's more like a Barack Obama. That's what they thought of him. The, the same way people thought of Obama as being like a click to the left of Hillary. They thought of Bill as being a click to the left of the democratic kind of mainstream but then i got hip to the fact before he was even sworn in um i got hip to the fact that he was a member of all the big rockefeller organizations in new york the council on foreign relations and the trilateral commission and the bilderberg group and all that kind of you know this is sort of the right-wing conspiracy culture mm -hmm. and and so i realized immediately this is how a governor from arkansas becomes a president <laughs> is he's from new york city dude he's a wall street guy and he's you know bought and paid for one of them you know, he's not some bumpkin. And so you can see the ruse and how then he pursued the exact same agenda that George Bush would have liked to pursue, such as, for, for example, passing NAFTA, which Bush couldn't pass because he had a Democratic Congress. And Bill Clinton, again, his cocaine smuggling partner from just a few years before was able to get all that done. Um, and that operation really was run out of the vice president's office. All of Iran-Contra really was run by Bush senior. It was HW. No, but the, the father, uh, Vice yeah. President yeah. Bush in the Reagan years. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so did that come out of his uh, CIA connections from prior back in the Kennedy era? Yeah. And one, I think part of, you know, Seymour Hirsch wrote a big piece about this a couple of years ago now about how Bill Casey, he'd been like a leftover from the OSS and he, you know, had been Reagan's campaign manager and he got the spot at CIA, but basically he was an old kook. Mm -hmm. And so the way Hirsch told it was, sort of the whole public-facing scandal of Iran-Contra, that it was the CIA, was a limited hangout. That there was an entire unnamed government organization being run by Vice President Bush and a couple of admirals, and they were the ones who were really in charge of everything and were doing everything on a much deeper level of secrecy that they got away with during that whole time, which sounds right to me, basically. That so thinking of the Vice President running things... Um, mm -hmm. I, the senior, H.W., he was the first, 1988 was the first presidential campaign that I 
was aware of. I was, uh, huh? was I nine, I think at that point. Um, and so I, I remember paying attention a little bit to that campaign. Um, and then there was the first Gulf War and I didn't know anything about Dick Cheney. And then when he became the vice president, we're back in that region. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a, a pattern where the vice kind of is a, uh, a dark player in <laughs> global. Well, uh, you know, you're very astute. Uh, yeah. And, and Dick Cheney is, is really right at the center of this. So there's actually a great piece by Robert Dreyfus called the vice squad. Mm. I don't know if people can still find that it was in the American prospect, I believe back uh, in the W Bush years. And it's exactly about how they learn the lesson of the Reagan years which was you can get away with anything if you have the vice president do it. Because as Al Gore would put it, there's no controlling legal authority. Does that work in today's current administration? Um, No, 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 no. Because Kamala Harris could not possibly be put in charge of anything. That's a funny joke, though. But when it comes to Dick Cheney and his guys, they had learned this from the Reagan years. And... Um, you know, they didn't need quail. They did whatever they wanted the first, you know, the first, uh, that four year Bush senior term. But when it came to W Bush, the idea was, listen, Mr. President, you just give mm-hmm. as much of that stuff off of your plate to me and me mm-hmm. and Scooter will take care of it. You know, Scooter yeah. Libby, oh, yeah. the, you know, um, we'll take care of it for you there, buddy. And then they were able, you know, that was where the torture program came from and the illegal spying program and all that came through the vice president's office then. And yes, that did help them get away with it, that there's essentially you'd have had to have the attorney general appoint some kind of special counsel to go after him for it, which of course they were never going to do. But so let me say one thing back. So as long as we're on the Gulf War here, I was 15 in ninth grade, a little bit older than you. And I was very much into like jet fighters and explosions and cool, you know, boy stuff because I'm a boy. But I remember being very suspicious of, well, see, I never really, I wasn't really raised on the Republicans anyway. So I had no real like reason to defer to Bush. And even, even if you were a Republican, Bush was no Reagan. You know what I mean? He was like Mm -hmm. Biden to Obama or something, right? right? He's like, not the, not the Mm -hmm. same thing. So there was nothing to believe in there when it came to Bush senior. And I remember when he said he didn't need a congressional authorization at all. He had a authorization from the UN security council to go to war. And I knew enough just from government school constitution Mm -hmm. that James Madison and them made it not that way deliberately. And that, no, you can't do that. And then I learned that, uh uh-huh, they can do that. They've been doing it since Truman. Yeah. Right. And that this is the whole thing. And so this was the key of like the, 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 you know, and Bush called it the <laughs> new world order over and over again. So there's already a whole new world order conspiracy theory where that's the code word, not for the American empire, but for this one world government that ends up subsuming the United States as well and becomes a real one world federal government of the planet. So that was a big part of, you know, to answer your original question of how I became so interested in foreign policy was because the whole conspiracy theory of the evil unnamed forces who control everything, the name of their game was foreign policy. The the core of their group was said to be the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City, that this is the 
again, this is what the group that Bill Clinton was a member of that let me know that he was one of them, not <laughs> one of the American people, but some guy from power. And mm -hmm. it's a Rockefeller organization. They're, you know, Standard Oil. This is big business and the American world empire type guys. So um, I want to clarify that I'm not a one world order kook now. And I got over that when... I should have gotten over it when Bill Clinton bombed Kosovo because mm. I knew and I understood there was a contradiction here that he was doing this over Russia's dead body. This was not part of like bringing Russia into NATO and building a one world white army of the north. This was quite contrary to that goal. And I just thought, well, I don't know. They'll just get back to it. But this one was important enough for him or something. I don't know. But I should have known then that this whole, you know, merging with the Russians and all that is not on the table. So stupid me for that, but I was still like in my early 20s. But then when Dick Cheney came in, I thought, okay, clearly we're going to war in Iraq. But they're, and they're going to dress it up as kind of this right-wing nationalist patriotic Republican thing. But ultimately, it'll be a UN war. And ultimately, they'll promise the northern oil fields to Russia and France if they have to, to get their vote on the Security Council and make it a UN war. And they didn't do that at all. And Dick Cheney told Putin, you know, expletive, my expletive. And there was just, no, from the virtually the beginning of, of Iraq War II, it was clear. My whole, the John Bircher basically kind of schema of the all this is eventually a grand design building toward the building blocks of one world government, blah, blah, blah. But that was all null and void when it came to Dick Cheney, who was kind of, you know, more of a right-wing nationalist and a conservative rather than a Rockefeller type, and the neoconservatives who only care about Israel. They don't care about America, much less building a world government for some grand this or that. All they care is about is stealing the West Bank from the Palestinians and helping the Likud party get away with it. And so if they can get America to change the balance of power in the Middle East to create a situation more favorable to Israel, then they'll have a war in Iraq and the United Nations be damned, which I agree with the United Nations be damned part, but not so that Israel can steal more and America can kill more. But so anyway, that, that was the answer to your question of how I got stuck like this <laughs> was, and I did look. I got to say that the John Birch guys have a lot of great footnotes and people want to read their, you know, the, the, their sources for their version of the history of the 20th century. There's really a lot there. And in fact, I'll, I'll do you better than that. If you really want to know kind of the distilled, very good without the kooky stuff version of that kind of history, here's what you read. It's Murray Rothbard and it's called Wall Street Banks and American foreign policy. And the thing about Rothbard is, is he's just a brilliant genius, way smarter than the smartest Bircher ever was, except for Will Grigg. But anyway, he is so smart. And it's just, there's no Freemasons and Skull and Bones and Illuminati and, and you know, you know, the Rockefellers are communists and all this weird stuff. It ain't like that. It's, but it is, here's what the Rockefellers were up to in the 20th century. And, and here's how they got it done. And, that's conspiracy enough for you, I promise. So, but it's not, it doesn't have all the secret societies and kooky stuff. It's just business, man. That's all. So, so it's not a, a grand, like evil, dark scheme as much as it's a money play and a power play. Yeah. Look, or is that the same thing? Evil, dark scheme. I mean, yeah, look, it's a, <laughs> it's a murder plot. It's like if you do an armed robbery at a bank, your chances are somebody's going to get shot. 
Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, no, it's wrong. It's definitely wrong. But it's not, look, here's what it's not. It's not ultimately treason at the expense of America other than in effect, right? <laughs> right. This is all against our interest. Mm -hmm. But it's not as the conspiracy guys would have it that ultimately it's building a one world government that where America will only be one big province under that. Not till the aliens come in. I'm not too worried. About well, that. there. I mean, Mexico just unveiled them. So we're we're on our way. Uh, today. Right, no, I'm behind <laughs> the curve on that one. Today uh, is September 14. 20 mm -hmm. it was a 22nd anniversary uh, of 9-11. Yep. Um, the first time a sitting president was not at a memorial, um, but I took the great pleasure in listening to On the Media. Uh, they had a episode called How 9-11 Broke Our Brains. Hmm. And uh, the War on Terror, I kind of want to talk about that as a, as a, as a concept, really. Um, sure. And then <clears throat> they talked about Loose Change, you know, the documentary that came out that really questioned the official narrative of the 9-11 attack on New York City and the Pentagon and um, Flight 93, I think. Um, and they said <clears throat> it's a conspiracy, a conspiracy theory that only worked because it, of the time it was released. Um, and it was in the early days of where people had just started having the opportunity because of laptops and um, computing was becoming more accessible. Um, for, so people could actually video edit themselves. They could pick, pull things around and cut stuff together. And so that's why it did. And it really shook our brains because it caused the American public to doubt American exceptionalism. That was their, their, the real thrust of their whole expose well, on the conspiracy theory of 9-11. Yeah, because they can't just point the finger at themselves. And the <laughs> truth is, look, the reason that people, and, and first of all, let me stipulate, that movie is so stupid, and there's four <laughs> versions of it, yeah. and none of them are right about anything. The only thing they got right in any of those four versions of that same stupid film is the day of the attack. And people just <laughs> throw it in the garbage. Forget it. That's not where it's at. But that's not why people believed in that crap. People believed in that crap because on the media by NPR News and the rest of NPR News would not tell the American yeah. people the truth about what happened. Everybody knew that they were lying. Mm -hmm. They were lying right to our faces. The guy in the robe with the beard did it, and immediately they turn around and blame it on the guy with the beret and the mustache. And the mustache, yeah. And mm -hmm. everybody knows that ain't right. And they blamed it on what they do immediately. And maybe, I don't know, oh, you were old enough then. Mm -hmm. Remember how they did. And everyone who was old enough listening to this, remember how it was then. Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Taliban. Mm -hmm. In fact, forget Al-Qaeda. Taliban, Taliban, Taliban. Remember how they did that? And your mom and dad didn't know the difference. But the difference was everything, yeah. right? The difference was the Taliban were a bunch of cavemen hillbillies from the far side of the town of Bedrock who could barely read and write, who just taken over this country with the help of Bill Clinton and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan in the 1990s, who had as their grand design, holding on to the little power they had and trying to win the civil war and rule their own little country, right? The Al-Qaeda guys were millionaires. I mean, Bill uh, Bin Laden himself was the son of a billionaire, basically like the Rockefellers of Saudi Arabia. The Bin Laden family, mm -hmm. uh, they own like the Halliburton group, the massive construction conglomerate. He had an engineering degree. 
had traveled to Europe, had read stacks of books on whatever. His partner, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who had been the leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, was a surgeon in Cairo, right? A doctor. These guys were worldly guys, highly educated guys. They looked down on the Taliban as like white trash scum that they were like there kind of lording over them. And, and, and the Taliban have this honor code that says you can't kick out a guest. And these Arabs were just exploiting that. And, and the Taliban had made them swear not to attack the United States, and they did it anyway. And the Americans, what did the Americans do? They let Osama escape. They refused to, get, to dedicate the forces necessary to corner him and his men at Tora Bora in Nangarhar province in the east. Well, what were they doing? Famously, I know you remember, they were fighting at Mazari Sharif, <laughs> up 700 mm -hmm. miles away, fighting against the Taliban. That's like, you know... Um, Osama's getting away in Houston and all our guys are up fighting in Amarillo. Right. Okay. That's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. It was completely ridiculous. So, um, and I write in both of my books, I think I proved that this was deliberate, that they refused to allow the Delta force and the CIA special activities division, paramilitaries, the reinforcements that they needed, which were available Rangers and green berets. What, what was, the, what was deliberate? The the allowing the, the allowing him to go play, attacking attacking Kabul and doing a regime mm -hmm. change in the capital against the Taliban instead of fighting against the people who had actually attacked the United States. They wanted that boogeyman out there. If people have ever read 1984, um, you know, uh, remember it's Goldstein or. Oh, yeah, Snowball in Animal Farm. It's Goldstein in 1984. The enemy, the enemy, mm -hmm. he, he ripped us off. He betrayed us. He's, he's out there. As long as he's out there, you'll never be safe. And, and especially Saddam Hussein could give him chemical weapons to attack us with. And so who cares if Saddam Hussein is going to give him chemical weapons if he's already dead? The narrative's dead. The American people think the war's already over. We won. Yeah. We killed the bad guy. And so we can't have that. We've got to let the bad guy live and attack the, the Taliban instead. It was the most cynical thing in the world. It was a deliberate decision by the Bush administration to do that. So, and in fact, go ahead. Well, I want to go a different, like, kind of dig deeper into the uh, the the potential um, awareness of it happening. Uh, oh, the attack itself. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, loose change. I'm off on my tangent. So here's the thing about it. Al Qaeda essentially grew out of the Arab Afghan army that had gone to Afghanistan to help the Mujahideen fight against the Soviet communists in the 1980s. People ever seen Rambo Three? This is where. The Soviets are in the place of the Americans and the uh, Mujahideen are the same Pashtuns fighting against them, right? Um, but the Arabs came, and really not just Arabs, but Chechens and Indonesians and Americans and all kinds of people came from all over the world to go and fight the holy war against the godless commies in the 80s, okay? When the war was over, they were a bunch of mercenaries with nowhere to go. And so they found work. And one of the first things that they did was go to Chechnya and then from there, they went to Bosnia and then to Kosovo and then back to Chechnya again. And during this whole time, through H.W. Bush and through Bill Clinton, America was still backing them, mostly by proxy through cooperation with our allies, the Saudis and the British and the Turks, but and especially the Brits. 
But what you have to understand is that Al-Qaeda essentially, it was what was called the Azam group in the 1980s, was led by a guy named Abdullah Azam. And when he was killed, and I don't think anybody really knows who killed him, but when he was killed, bin Laden took over his group. And then, as I mentioned, Ayman al-Zawahiri, he was the leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad. His partner was the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, the guy that his men blew up the World Trade Center in 1993. Mm -hmm. So it starts out, our guys, our intelligence services are just being too cute and they think everything's just fine and they're going to back these terrorist killers in Afghanistan. But starting in 1990 with the assassination of a rabbi, of a rabbi in New York City and then with the attempted uh, attack on Americans in Yemen in 92, the successful or, well, semi-successful World Trade Center bombing of 1993, which could have toppled one tower over into the other and almost did. Uh, which would have been an absolute catastrophe. Um, and then they attacked, uh, just real quick, in 1995, they killed Americans training the Saudi National Guard. In 96, they killed American airmen stationed uh, at Kobar in the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia, which Bill Clinton's government blamed on Iran and Iranian-backed Saudi Hezbollah, or Shiites, which is a joke and a lie. It was bin Laden who did it, Al-Qaeda that did it. And they blew up the embassies in Africa in uh, August of 1998 in um, uh, Nairobi, Kenya and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And they bombed the USS Cole in the year 2000. And you might remember they almost bombed LAX, but they got caught at the border. And Al-Qaeda guy got caught at the border by an alert border patrol guard at the border between British Columbia and Washington State. And the guy had, you know, prayers to Osama or whatever and a <laughs> map to LAX and explosives. <laughs> Um, not prayers to Osama. That was a hyperbole. But anyway, <laughs> busted. Again, was legitimately an Al-Qaeda guy who'd fought for on Bill Clinton's side in Bosnia. So my point being here that they were attacking us all through the 90s. It wasn't just September 11th. They'd been attacking us all through the 90s. And it was Egyptian Islamic Jihad and sort of, you know, proto-Al-Qaeda, these groups kind of coming together, doing this against us. At the same time, Bill Clinton's still backing them anyway. He's backing them in Bosnia, he's backing them in Kosovo, backing them in Chechnya. And the idea was, and this was apparently the way that the Brits saw it too, and the Saudis saw it, was if we just keep paying these guys and helping them, for example, fight against the Russians in Chechnya, they'll leave us alone. Hmm. And if we get a few attacks, mostly they're overseas. And, um, you know, this comes actually from the Weekly Standard, believe it or not. It was a very well-sourced article by... I'm sorry, I forget the guy's name now, but people can go and find this. In um, They have the archives of the Weekly Standard are, are kept at the Washington Examiner website, if people can want to look at that. Um, but what it is, is that the guy says in the 1990s, uh, oh, it's a, it's a high-level special operations commander is being quoted. And in the 1990s, he says the joint staff, that is the highest-level policy planners for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they had a cliche. They would say, terrorism is a small price to pay for being a superpower. So if... Wait, perpetrating uh, terrorism? Or, well, or or having it perpetrated on you as a superpower? Having, it's just something... Yeah, you, yeah, it's collateral it damage. It's acceptable. But that's right, because, look, a few hundred people died in those Africa embassy mm -hmm. attacks, but they were mostly a bunch of Africans. And so a truck bomb goes off here, there, and who cares? Right? We lost six people at the first World Trade Center bombing. So from their point of view, come on, what are they going to do? Right? And they weren't using their imagination the way the Bin Ladenites were using their imagination about what they could do and, you know, what they could get away with. Mm -hmm. And 
And so I, I, it is true. Like if the truthers say, forget loose change, but say like the smartest truther, you know, says that, Hey, look, Ben, Bill Clinton was backing bin Laden in Chechnya and hell in Kosovo, right you know, through the end of his presidency and Bush continued that policy, even in the early part of his presidency, that's true. And, you know, they were back in the KLA in Kosovo, even as they're invading Macedonia through the summer of 01. And Eric Margolis says that he saw, um, you know, was basically CIA approved training camps in Afghanistan where the Pakistani ISI was training Chinese Uyghurs to fight against China. And this is, you know, in cooperation with bin Laden and his men in Afghanistan in the summer of 01. But that doesn't mean that they then control everything that these guys mm -hmm. do. It means that, you know, they're essentially full of this hubris that says that they can do whatever they want and, and whatever consequences will be a small price to pay and who really cares. And then, you know, also in government, you have a lot of not my department. Right. My job is giving these guys a ride to Chechnya. Your job is stopping them from blowing up the World Trade Center <laughs> right. you know, and all this. So it's, you know, um, and also, look, this is the official story. And people ignore this. People give you like the real red herring, like total goofball junior high version of the official story. But the real official story is that the FBI and the CIA could have stopped this if they didn't hate each other more than they hated the terrorists. So so and they knew all, it was they knew something was coming or maybe they knew exactly what was coming. Right. And they were working at cross purposes and refusing to essentially cooperate. And and really, I mean, the worst of it now is and by the way, if you want here, here's the conspiracy theory, if you want. I'll give you the Occam's razor short, like easier version in a second. But if you want the smart conspiracy theory, you completely forget 99.9% .9 of this stuff. Like just throw out all that loose change stuff. Here's the conspiracy. The conspiracy is to what degree did the Saudi intelligence services help Al-Qaeda do this thing? And to what degree was the CIA cooperating with them in that and why? Right? That's always was the question. Not a bunch of bombs in the towers. You know, the reason they crashed the planes two-thirds of the way up the building is so that there would be a thousand tons of steel and concrete above the damage part because they're trying to collapse the tower. That's the whole point of crashing the plane of the damn thing. Meanwhile, the question is, what did Prince Bandar and Prince Turkey know and when did they know it? Let's waterboard those two men <laughs> only and start with that, right? And see, poke them, we'll put them up on the gallows put a crown of thorns on their head and start poking them in the side with a stick and tell them squeal boy and see what they have to say about Dick Cheney and whether there was really some kind of agreement to turn a blind eye and allow this thing to happen or for the Saudis to essentially help Al Qaeda to accomplish the attack. If there's the conspiracy, that's the conspiracy. Okay. I think it's much more likely that these cops are a bunch of meathead idiots and they suck at their job. And we know, for example, that the CIA had followed two of the hijackers from the meeting, from the Malaysia meeting where they planned the attack and agreed on the attack and the coal attack, followed them straight from there to Bangkok and to L.A., where they went to go live with an FBI informant and a Saudi military or, or intelligence operative named Al-Bayoumi, where these, and this is a year and a half before the attack. These guys are in the country for 18 months. They're the guys... By the way, speaking of loose change and all their crap, they say a missile hit the Pentagon. No, it was these two guys 
that the CIA had followed from Malaysia to Bangkok, Thailand, to LAX, California, who lived with a Saudi asset and an FBI asset for years or for a year and a half, uh, Hazmi and Midhar, they were the ones who hit the Pentagon, crashed Flight 77 right into it. So if you really want to be a kook about it, you can say that the loose change guys were disinformation mm. selling you this missile hit the Pentagon crap to keep you from asking who were the men who piloted that plane into the building? Where do they come from? And which cops and which spies knew what about them and when? That was everything. Who are these men and what can we find out about who knew what about them? But all of that got obfuscated with, you know, these college kids and their little class project. So, um, so what which about, is really a shame. Yeah. It's really a shame because all those guys who just went jumping the gun mm -hmm. and speculating and 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 missile hit the Pentagoning and all that, they ruined the issue for any like real great investigative reporters who might have gotten to the bottom of things much sooner. I mean, we only found out some of the stuff about the Saudis only in the last two years. Mm -hmm. Only in the last two years is because there's this um, basically a leak from the lawsuit against Saudi. They got so much in discovery that, and they can't get anywhere with the lawsuit, so they started disseminating it out to the media. <laughs> so we started finding out more and more and more about what the Saudis knew. So, and also let me bring this up too, because uh, you know it's worth bringing up. It looks like the Israelis were following some of the hijackers around. Now, that doesn't mean that they were controlling them or that they knew exactly what they were going to do, but it does seem like they did know something was going to happen. And they finally alerted the FBI in August of 2001. And um, so that's part of it. Now, people say that there's the dancing Israelis. Or, or I think it's they're better called the high fivers is mm. what Justin Romando called them. And these were the Israelis who were celebrating the attack as it was happening. But the key there is, were they there before the first tower was hit or did they only show up after the fact? Because they could be horrible cynics and say, hooray, this is great for Israel. Now we'll be able to fool you idiots into attacking whoever <laughs> we want for us mm. without having anything to do with it. The question is whether they were there before the first plane hit the first tower. And I don't think there's any real reason to believe that. There's one lady who said that she thought so, but that's just one source and there's no way to prove that. And mm -hmm. so there's that. Oh, and then I mentioned Chechnya and Al-Qaeda there. You've heard of this one, Zacharias Musawi. He was training in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. He wanted to learn how to fly a jumbo jet on the simulator there. Wasn't too interested in how to take off or land. Yeah. Just wanted to know how to fly. And was talking about how he wanted to fly the route from Heathrow to JFK. And so the, a guy at the flight school was like, this is not right called the FBI. The FBI said, no, we agree with you. This is not right. And they called headquarters back in DC and wanted permission to use the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to search the guy's uh, property, his, especially his computer. Now, for the government to search you as an American, you know, a US person, they need probable cause. That mm -hmm. means they need to supposedly, right? Anyway, they need to be able to <laughs> say to a judge- <laughs> On paper, that's what it says. Yeah, yeah, we have real reason to believe if we search this guy, we're going to find reason, uh, a reason, uh, a crime, mm -hmm. uh, proof of a crime that we could prosecute him for, right? If you're under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, if they believe that you are an agent of a foreign power, of a foreign terrorist group, 
Well, that threshold of evidence lowers to a reasonable belief that you're a foreign agent of a foreign power. Remember, Jeez, that could just terrorist. be someone's opinion at that point. That's right. Yeah. And they don't have to say to the judge, and we're real sure, judge, we, we have reason to believe that if we search this place or this computer, we're going to find evidence of X, Y, Z. No, no, no. They can say, judge, we want to do a fishing expedition. <laughs> we just want to go guy. look. That's right. That's the law. So in Minneapolis, they said, we want to do a fishing expedition on this guy. Give us a FISA warrant. Hmm. And D.C. said no. So they put out, uh, you know, went and contacted European, I guess, FBI stations in Europe, or they just went straight to the foreign governments in Europe. And the French turned over a bunch of data, said, yeah, we know this guy. Him and his brother both are recruiters for Al-Qaeda in Chechnya. And the FBI in Minnesota said to D.C., see, the guy's tied to Al-Qaeda in Chechnya. <laughs> and you know what D.C. said? What's Al-Qaeda in Chechnya, dude? We like Al-Qaeda in Chechnya. Mm. We don't call them Al-Qaeda. We call them Al-Qatab and his nationalist resistance fighters, the moderate rebels. And so, no, you can't have your FISA warrant. Well, guess what? After 9-11... As soon as the first tower was hit, they called and said, now can we search this computer? And they said, no, that still has nothing to do with it, dude. And it wasn't until they hit another tower and both of them fell and they hit the Pentagon and another plane crashed. And finally, all the phones are ringing. And finally, that evening of September 11th, Washington field office or Washington headquarters says, okay, okay, you can search the guy's computer. You can get a FISA warrant. The, of course, the FISA court rubber stamps it immediately. They go, well, the guy's tied to Al-Qaeda in Chechnya. And they go, good enough for me. Cha-ching. <laughs> they, they search the computer. And guess what? They find Ramsey bin Al-Sheep, who was the partner, number one, uh, best buddy and partner with Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker from Flight 11. And they find connections between him and the hijackers in Florida, which is the, the core group of the hijackers that, that hit the planes in New York. In other words, if they had done their job one month before, when they were begging to, when they were trying to do their job, they would have almost certainly wrapped the whole thing up and prevented the attack from happening at all. So is this and incompetence? Because of Bill Clinton's treason, he had compromised, he put the FBI bosses in the political position of saying, uh-oh, we don't want to go calling the Chechen terrorists mm. terrorists now, or we're going to get in trouble and helped cause the uh, September 11th attack to happen, helped allow that to happen. And oh, one more thing, as long as I'm rambling, you asked me about this. There's a great journalist named James Bamford who wrote a book called The Shadow Factory. And it's all about, this is his third book about the NSA. He wrote The Puzzle Palace and Body of Secrets. He's the best guy in the NSA other than Ed Snowden in the world, okay? And he uh, wrote this whole book about what the NSA knew about 9-11, what they didn't share with the FBI and the CIA. And it's this is part that's totally covered up. The 9-11 Commission, which I never read it, but I'm told, doesn't even talk about the NSA at all, right? But the NSA and the CIA and the FBI all had the same kind of level of beef with each other. And I know one of the stories of that is that there was what was called the Yemen switchboard house where they would take calls from Afghanistan and from Europe and America and translate or, you know, transfer the messages back and forth. Mm -hmm. Well, the um, NSA would not give the intercepts over to the CIA. At this time, now we have the director of national intelligence, but at that time, 
the director of the CIA was also the director of central intelligence, which meant he was the boss of the CIA, but he was also the boss of all the other intelligence agencies too. So George Tenet had all the authority in the world that he needed to pull rank and go to the NSA and get whatever he demanded if he would do it, but he wouldn't do it. And so the CIA actually, this is how, how filthy rich these guys are with our money. They went and had to build their own listening station on Madagascar to go and try to listen to the Yemen switchboard house, which they did. But they could only get half the conversation and they couldn't hear the other half of what was going on from Afghanistan or from Europe. And and the NSA would not share it with them. They just would not share it with them. And and you know, I interviewed Michael Scheuer, who had been the head of the CIA's bin Laden unit, who's just absolutely mad as hell about this. He goes, George Tenet had any moral courage whatsoever. <laughs> he would have gone over there and demanded those transcripts and he wouldn't do it. And then, and by the way, that same guy, and I urge people to Google this, it's really something to see. Google um, in YouTube, um, Michael Scheuer, that's S-C-H-E-U-E-R, Michael Scheuer and John O'Neill. And what you're looking for is congressional testimony by Scheuer. He's the guy with the beard and the glasses, not you, the other guy. <laughs> and, and, and the congressman asks him about John O'Neill, who was the head of counterterrorism for the FBI, who'd just been run out of there and had become the head of security on, at the World Trade Center because he knew it was an attack coming soon. And then he died that day. And Michael Scheuer tells Congress under oath the only good thing that happened on 9-11 is that building came down on John O'Neill's head. And wow. he meant it. He meant it. Because that, you know, the way that the CIA looked at it was the FBI wanted to take every last scrap of data that they could get and then lock it up behind a grand jury. Mm -hmm. Where the CIA wanted it so they could use it to kidnap and kill these guys. They were at war. The FBI was, you know, at prosecution. And so they were just, you know, totally at odds with each other. And I'm not making excuses for these guys. I mean, all of this to me amounts to criminally negligent homicide. Hmm. And I do think, honestly, that Prince Bandar and Prince Turkey ought to be, you know, at least hung upside down from one foot or something until they are made to tell the truth about every single thing that they know about that attack. And including if they got to squeal and point their finger at Dick Cheney and whoever, too. Well, that won't be that won't go well. And. American uh, <clears throat> justice. Um, so th there's a couple things about the that day that intrigue me with that it's just so causes such question. One of them, speaking to the Pentagon, um, why is this just like January 6th? Why are they so afraid to release video footage that they got? I don't think they have around? any more footage of it, dude. But they, but you know. there's one one very small angle. It, it, is there really nothing else at that building at the Pentagon? There's I don't no other that there is really. Other, I don't believe that there's, I mean, there have been, if I go back like 20 years, I remember there being like rumors that they had confiscated cameras from the shell station, but I don't think that there's any solid reporting that says, yeah, and you can definitely see the plane on that footage mm -hmm. or anything like that mm -hmm. after that. Um, but look, there's just no question that a plane hit the Pentagon that day, man. You know, Daniel McAdams, who's Ron Paul's right-hand man, foreign policy genius, the plane flew right over his apartment, you know, cast a shadow in the skylight in his apartment, sounded just like an airplane <laughs> flying over his apartment. He knew what it was. And there's all kinds of people deny this. There's no point denying it. There's 
all kinds of footage, uh, uh, pictures and video of wreckage at that site from the plane engines and landing gear and seats. And plus the people killed and their remains that were scraped up with Q-tips, you know, and, and all the people that came in to process that scene and all of that, um, the people who were killed there and how, and, and look, in fact, one of those versions of the four versions of loose change, it might be version four. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a part of a one of them. They computer expert <laughs> yeah. to do a cartoon where they show the dimensions of the plane and how it lined up to the Pentagon. And it's a perfect match. It's like Bugs Bunny going right through the wall and it leaves the silhouette. It's exactly the shape of the plane. And they gave, it's so funny because they give all of the dimensions of the plane. It's this tall and the wingspan is this wide and all these things. <clears throat> and, and then they even, I'm trying to remember now, I think they even say, but they don't elaborate, they just change the subject. They're like, oh yeah, and the fuselage, the diameter of the fuselage is 16 feet. Uh-huh. And then and the major part of the hole in the building, what's the, what's the diameter of the hole? It's 16, 18 feet, something like that. And then except where the wings hit, where it's longer. And people go, oh yeah, well how come there's not wreckage all over the lawn? Well, because it didn't crash on the lawn, stupid. It crashed into the building. That's why. Seriously, man. And again, this is such a red herring. Here's a brand new conspiracy theory for you. The loose change kids, they all work for the Israelis. And did, they made up did all they of that to get you to not ask who were the mm. men who hijacked Flight 77 and crashed it into the Pentagon. Because if you ask that, you might find out the answer to it. I just made that up. It's a total mm -hmm. lie. They're not Israelis. They're just stupid. They're really <laughs> stupid. And in fact, on one of the anniversaries of 9-11, uh, Slate.com did an interview with one of the, uh, the loose change kids. Mm -hmm. And they go, dude, you got to admit that this was totally wrong. You got nothing right in this thing. And he's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And it's really, it is a tragedy too. And, you know, and again, you know whose fault it is? NPR. Because NPR blamed it on a bunch of cavemen mm -hmm. and said that they hated us for our freedom. When no, it was Ronald Reagan, sorry, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton's mercenaries who did it. And they did it because they hated us for bombing Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia and supporting Israel, murdering children and stealing property in Palestine and in Lebanon. And they didn't want to tell you that. That, look, these Egyptians were willing to kamikaze our buildings because of what Israel was doing in Lebanon. Horrible sins against innocent women and children. That was the motive. Just like, guess what Americans did after September 11th? They got all angry and did something violent. Killed people in the sand. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's what people do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I see, my adult life, there has not been... Um, active combat somewhere in the world that we are, you know, the claim is, oh, we're just protecting or we're, we're there for support. No, it certainly doesn't look like that. Uh, all right. WTC seven world trade center seven that did not get hit. It fell. Um, it got hit by the North tower is what it got hit by. Okay. And then, and so the, 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 the questioning arises from its, um, pristine fall. Uh, so whatever that means, I don't know. All it means is that the center core failed. And, Beautifully. And the building yeah. collapsed. Yeah, perfectly. See, all three of those buildings mm -hmm. were unique in that they had a core, what was called a core skin design, 
where all the columns were either in the center or pushed out to the walls. That's why I think about what you know, especially about World Trade Center, you know, one and two, the big ones. Remember how skinny the windows were? How close together the, the columns were on the outside of the building? That's because they had a full building's worth of columns in them. It's just they pushed them all to the outside. And so they had what was called a donut, like a just a big square of concrete floor that went around the center um, where the elevators and things were. And then they were tied to the outside walls. So unlike every skyscraper you've ever been in, they were they did not have steel reinforced concrete columns throughout them. They were just steel and they were, you know, on this unique thing, made them uniquely vulnerable once a kamikaze 757 compromises the center core and enough of the columns on the outside, you have enough fire, the thing falls down. Then in the case of building seven, one, it was hit by the North Tower and people always completely ignore that, that there was major structural damage to the building and that caught on fire and that it also is on this core skin design. And I can't find this anymore. I don't know if anybody can find this anymore, but I read a study about this years ago where they explained that the center core of building seven was actually not, pardon me, was not resting on the concrete floor foundation of the, of the site. It was actually resting on a steel joist that went across at the lobby level, the floor of the lobby level and it's ceiling of the basement type level. So once from fire, I guess it, the fire burned all day, right? We, you know, once it caught on fire, all the firefighters were dealing with the towers across the street. And then once they collapsed, they were digging in the rubble for their buddies. So all day long, the fire, and it was fed by a diesel generator because there was a power station in the building. And at least allegedly, there was, uh, you know, a leak in the generator that was fueling the fire all day long. And then essentially those steel joists just weakened enough that they failed. And that was it. And there's no mystery about it. And by the way, there is no affirmative reason to believe, no evidence anywhere, no indication that you can see that there are bombs going off inside that building. It does collapse. Well, I don't know what people want. What do they think it's going to do? It's going to fall over? Well, it didn't have any reason to fall over right? It would have needed some outside force pushing it sideways for that, but that wasn't how it was. It collapsed, you know, the center core came in and then the whole thing kind of came in. You can even see like the penthouse on top falls first, indicating like the support in the center goes. And, but meanwhile, and man, I mean, I don't know, what can I say? Like I was once a teenage boy with the discovery channel. I've seen the, the demolition companies blow up buildings a hundred times, maybe more, you know, whenever they uh, destroy a, a hotel in, in Las Vegas and build a new one in its place. I mean, I've seen that a thousand times. You can watch all those on film over and over again. And you pull that up. It's even like on the Simpsons, like Bart and Homer, like <laughs> when buildings collapse and what, right. you, and, and look, you see when they do that, you see what are called squibs the explosions, you see them everywhere. It goes, as it comes down. You can't disguise that. Building seven does not do that. People are like gay married to this thing. Like it's this <laughs> belief that they have, this thing that they have to have. What about building seven? Dude, it burned all day and it was hit by a 110 story tower. What do you want it to be, magic? 
Meanwhile, and here's the other thing too, and this is the reason it annoys me, is because if you just look into it, you can find where the firefighters, in fact, on my website, scotthorton.org, you can find this, the last word on building seven. Man, I'm gonna get in trouble for this crap. This <laughs> is called the last word on building seven. And I have all these firefighters from that night and the next day being debriefed. And it's all the, just the transcripts of their talk. And they're saying, yeah, man, me and Jimmy, we were in the bank building next door. And that building seven, it was making loud noise and creaking. And turn. We could see it moving. And we got on the radio and said, everybody get back. That building's coming down. And there's four or five different guys saying that from all day long. They knew, nobody read them into the secret CIA program that they were about to set up a bunch of bombs in there. Nobody said anything about bombs. They knew it was gonna collapse because a building was compromised and it was going to collapse. And people said, this is again, this loose change, red herring crap. I think this is in loose change, but it's same level of red herring was that Larry Silverstein, who had the lease on the building, was on the phone with the fire chief. And he goes, well, I was on the phone with them and the fire brigade was checking out the building. And they said the building was a total loss. And the implied understanding here is the building is still on fire all day long mm -hmm. at the time they're having this phone call. And Silverstein says, and so I told him, yeah, we might as well just pull it. Meaning the team of guys, we ought to pull it, the team of guys out. Pull the building is not a code word for set off a hundred <laughs> demolition charges in there. That's just made up. Come on, crap. it That's can be Scott. Come and on. the leaseholder <laughs> and the fire chief, yeah. god damn it, are not gonna be the ones calling the shot on setting off a bunch of demolition charges on your evil CIA operation <laughs> to blow up building seven. Okay? That's how it went, really. Larry Silverstein and the fire chief. <laughs> decided while kind of musing on a phone call, nah, maybe we'll just go ahead and pull it. And then by saying so, the building exploded because somehow there were hundreds of bombs in it, right? This makes no sense because it's wrong. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're running short on time. I'm sorry, this went a little... Right. It, it, Man, it, it took it took a leg down that <laughs> I usually try not to talk about this stuff because the people who believe in it are like Mormons, man. They just want no offense to Mormons, but I mean they just want to knock on your door and make you believe what they believe too, you know? <laughs> they don't want to let it slide. You know? I love Mormons. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying sometimes they're a little pushy. <laughs> are are we too far down the road with our uh I want to probably want to say two party rule in America to have any real change. Oh, yeah, I mean I, I mean I don't really know what to say about the future. But by the way, you know, this 9/11 stuff was one of the things that cured me from being a kook before. Like I told you I was a new world order conspiracy guy. <laughs> yeah. I predicted 9/11 for years. As did a lot of people. I'm not very special in that. Including Donald Trump. Guys, a lot of conspiracy guys knew that it was coming mm -hmm. and were right. I thought that Al-Qaeda was a CIA plot all along and that the whole thing, yes, it's an attack coming and the whole thing will be an inside job and blah, blah, blah. I thought all that before it even happened. And then after it happened, I saw all of the conspiracy guys, which already existed. There's a whole right-wing patriot movement, conspiracy theory movement out there ready to go for this. And 
I just saw them leaping to all these crazy conclusions, all this loose change level nonsense, where it's just they're cherry picking out little things to try to make a case that just could never withstand real scrutiny. And meanwhile, and here's the real reason to resent it. It's a smoke and a year and a half after 9-11. Yeah. The, the neoconservatives were framing Saddam Hussein for it. Mm -hmm. And they were telling the American people this was their conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah. Was that Iraq was the real power behind Al-Qaeda, not the CIA. They were the ones who did the anthrax attacks. And we'll never be safe as long as Saddam is in power in Baghdad. And all those conspiracy guys who could have been shouting at the top of their lungs, Saddam didn't do it. The conspiracy is to frame Iraq and pin it on Iraq and start a war with Iraq. They might have stopped the war. They might have been on the right, the help that the left needed to stop that war from starting. And instead, they're chasing their tail on this bullshit about a missile hit the Pentagon. Yeah, Donald Rumsfeld shot a missile at a building that he was sitting in at the time, which is what he always does. And it's so stupid. And it was at the time it was stupid. At the time, it was such a waste of energy that could have been spent trying at least to stop Iraq War II from breaking out. And it was a massive wasted opportunity. And even if the war had started anyway, at least they could be proud that they'd done everything they could to stop it. Instead, no. Instead, it was all this bullshit about Building 7. Give me a fucking break. If Saddam Hussein didn't do Building 7, then it doesn't matter, dude. And he didn't. All right, anyway. So, two-party this and that. Look, we're, we're very doomed. Back then, when I was still a New World Order guy in the 90s, I had all these right-wing militia friends who were like good on Oklahoma City, which I am a total Oklahoma City truther, by the way. And they were great on Waco. And they that's were on my list, know, but we don't really, have time. <laughs> that's okay. We're, they're really anti-government. Uh -huh. My pinned tweet is about Waco. If people are interested about Waco, okay. just look at my Twitter. Your ex? Um, I like it. But I was friends with a lot of those guys, kind of the right-wing conspiracy culture, like I'm talking about. And I was friends with a lot of leftists, too. I'm from Austin. And I was friends with a lot of leftists. And they're very, you know, anti-establishment in their ways, especially when the right-wing is in power. Well, and of course, to them, Democrats are all right-wingers. You know what I mean? Because they're like real leftists. Mm -hmm. So um, so I had my idea then was that all us regular people ought to all be friends. And I don't just mean people like workers. I mean, millionaires too, owners too, but maybe not billionaires. I don't know if there are any honest billionaires, like pretty much anybody who's a billionaire is on a government contract or 10, right? Like that might be different, maybe some, but I'm not a communist. Like I am, I'm not talking about like, you know, class, you know, total class, everything, but I am talking about like literally, like believe me, literally the 99%, hmm. right? So including including the rich people in almost every town, right? Just not on Wall Street, just not the arms manufacturers, just not the, all the, did you know the very richest counties in America are all outside DC? It's not Silicon Valley. Yeah. It's not LA, you know, uh, movie stars. It's not New York City, Manhattan. It's Virginia, right? <laughs> they're all on welfare. All these billionaires, they're all stealing our money in the name of militarism. And, um, and and they use the culture war to divide us. And look, there is a lot to fight about. Like ultimately the communists want to take your property away. And and you know, there's 
not much compromising with that. Um, at the same time, though, if we could just get everybody to kind of give up on what they want to see the government do and just come together, try to find ways to compromise and come together on what we want them to stop doing, I like to believe that we could really make a lot of progress, especially I think that this should be the role of libertarians in the world is making friends with leftists and rightists, although I talk a lot of smack, sometimes I shouldn't. Um, we shouldn't be so sectarian. We should be friends and try to lead the left and the right. If we can't make libertarians out of them all, we should at least make anti-war people out of them all. And we should at least make anti-central banking people out of them all and anti-militarization of police people out of them all and all of these kinds of things. I mean, if I just grab some mom and dad from your neighborhood and ask them, do you think that the next time all the banks fail that they should get billions of dollars of your free money to save them? And the agreement will be no, that we, we're gonna have them for dinner. Mm -hmm. That'd be just fine, right? So um, um, I believe that, um, but to finish the thought, even back then I knew it, it's never gonna work. I'm a libertarian and I'm from the edge of Travis County. So I just have enough in common with all these right wingers and all these left wingers. And I can understand them and, and, and get along with them in a way that they cannot with each other. And, and I'm a fool. And I was always a fool <laughs> to even hope for. I knew that I wasn't a fool. I was I, I'm fool to hope, but I knew then that it'll never happen. That, that at the end of the day, we'll have left wingers and right wingers you know, poor people fighting in the street while the power elite continues to do whatever they want, where the empire continues to do whatever they want. And then it's so easy to turn on the cultural issues because, you know, it's sort of like, well, like you just said about Waco, we don't have time for that. But you know what we do have time for? Did you hear what, you know, Billy said about Susie that got Jill all angry and whatever? Mm -hmm. You know, we can mm -hmm. fit that. Anybody can talk about right. that. You don't yeah. have to know anything about it. You don't have to have a baseline at all other than just know who these people are at all. Maybe not even then, right? And it's the same kind of thing with race and sex and skin color and all of that stuff. Anybody can talk about that. Mm -hmm. Hey, what do you think about race? Well, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. Dur, 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 dur. Everybody's got something, right? You don't, have to, you don't have to know anything to have something to say about who you resent and why and whatever. And so when people start getting upset, I mean, think of the Tea Party after, you know, an early Obama, after Bush. Now Bush was gone. They didn't feel so obligated to pretend to worship the government anymore. And people were really upset. It wasn't all cynical. People were really upset about the bank bailouts. And they, you know, focused on Obama and the spending, but it was really the bailouts and the TARP and all of that at the end of Bush that really got everybody animated. And there were, I've seen the footage, man. I was at, you know, at least one of these things. And I saw footage of these rallies where, People would say, hey, 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 just pipe down about abortion and immigration just today, right? Like, we're not saying drop the issue, but today we're talking bank bailouts. Mm. Today we don't want to fight about abortion. We want to keep it on money, right? And the same thing was going on with the Occupy Wall Street. They were saying, they were claiming to represent the 99%. Well, they weren't. They were leftists, right? Mm -hmm. They were not anything like the 99%. But there was something to build on there. They're like, well, wait a minute. You know, they weren't really claiming that 99% of people are leftists, but they were they were saying 99% of people agree with us that we don't think that all these most powerful corporations should be bailed out, that they should get free money. Yeah. I mean, what's the left say all day? They want welfare for poor people. And they're told all day, no, you can't have it. 
And then when it comes to the literally the richest, most powerful, wealthiest people in the world, when they get in trouble, they get tens of billions of dollars of government taxpayer money, inflationary money to bail their asses out. Man, that burns. It makes me as mad as it makes any commie. It should make everybody that mad. So there is all this potential for people to come together. And as George Carlin would say, let's just crucify some bankers, man. And we'll see what happens after that. Dude, I bet they get their act together then. And then what happened? We didn't do that. What'd they do? They go, oh, you got white privilege. Mm-hmm. Oh, you you hate gay people. Oh, you are gay people. Oh, this, oh, that. And it's all this crap. It's all this crap that what? That a college freshman can understand, right? Who's Who likes penises and who likes vaginas? Oh, this is so interesting, everybody, says everybody, right? And, and how dare that be your stupid opinion about that issue? Why? <laughs> I did the opposite thing from that. And, and then, and people just, you know what? It's like um, it's like cutting the head off a chicken and it's still running around. You know, it's like they just they they use the culture war to eliminate economic war. And again, I wouldn't want the commies to win. I want the the right wing libertarians to win. No welfare for anyone, especially the wealthiest banks the biggest banks and corporations, the more power and wealth you've got, the less connection you should be allowed to have, the less the state should do for you. And and it should be for, that goes really across the board for everyone. We don't want welfare for poor people either. It's bad for poor people. It's bad for everyone. Um, but, um, but that's how they get you, man. And George Carlin said it way back in 1992 in Jamming in New York. He goes, was it Jamming in New York? I believe it was. He goes, that's how they get you. you talk about race and sex mm-hmm. and class and regional differences and whatever they can possibly come up with to keep all of us fighting amongst each other so that they can keep going to the bank. All the things Barely they tell concept happens yeah. to work. All the things they tell you not to talk about in a job interview are the things right. that people want to talk about. Right. Uh, ScottHorton.org. Um, I geez, we've just barely opened the box here. Um, and you are 21. You wrote a book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Um, that yeah, alone is that one to you real quick. Yeah, th- that alone is an hour long conversation just to open the book. So if people go look at my Twitter, I gave a speech where I basically give a rundown on that the other day on 9 11. Um, you look in the media section there it's a pretty recent one um but what it is is it's the rundown from jimmy carter through donald trump all the middle east wars and how one led to the next one led to the next one led to the next one kind of thing there um and then explain you know all of bush and obama and, and trump's wars too in the after 9 11 kind of era there um and I, I wrote another one called Fool's Errand about Afghanistan, which actually started out as chapter two of Enough Already, mm. but I got stuck on Afghanistan and ended up turning it into a whole book. <laughs> um, and then I went back and did now, it again. Was that, so that was all b- building up. So the uh, the Biden pullout hadn't happened yet, correct? That's right. Okay. That's right. It came out in 21. Okay. So would would it be a different product if you wrote that book today? Oh, no. I mean, it would have, I mean, in fact, I probably will eventually like change the subtitle mm-hmm. from time to end the war in Afghanistan to a real history of the war in Afghanistan. And then I'll add an addendum on there that mm-hmm. says, I told you so, man, about everything. 
Um, but as far as like what I changed my mind about, yeah, we should get out because of what a disaster getting out was absolutely not. In fact, I hope people take my, my real meaning here that that absolutely horrific close of the war with the Taliban seizing all the weapons, walking right into Kabul, mm -hmm. uh, suicide bombing, killing a bunch of innocent people, including 13 young Marines, some of whom hadn't even been born yet on 9-11, and then a drone attack on an innocent family of 10 uh, in revenge when they got the wrong Corolla. Let me tell you something. That's the perfect end of the war in Afghanistan. That is the war in Afghanistan. From because it showed what it really is or was. I'm not saying, I, I, again, I, I beg people to take me in the proper mm -hmm. context what I mean by that. It is the most fitting end to that war that you could have possibly come up with is for it to exactly end that way. Mm. And by the way, Donald Trump's deal said we will be out by the 1st of May. Well, there was a reason for that. The 1st of May is the first day of fighting season in Afghanistan. <laughs> and we wanted to be out of there. Colonel McGregor had been special advisor to the Pentagon, um, to the Secretary of Defense at the end there. And he wrote up a memo for Trump, an order, uh, demanding we get out right now. We leave now early. Forget May 1st. Let's get out now, December of 20. And they just overruled him. Trump backed down again. Hmm. And they overruled him a couple of days later. Well, there's a real reason. Again, get all of our guys out of there sooner, not later. What does Biden do? Biden comes in and says, now we're not leaving until September. And for some reason, September 11th was going to mark the day of our defeat. Like, what are right. they doing there? But anyway, what does he achieve by kicking the can down the road four months? Nothing. What he gets is he gets to say, this is my withdrawal, not Donald Trump's withdrawal. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing what Donald Trump said. I'm doing what I want. So these people well, are 12. I'm sorry? I mean, these people are 12, really, these presidents. Oh, yeah, they are. They mm -hmm. are absolutely ridiculous babies. Mm -hmm. So, But then here's the deal. He delays, but the Taliban doesn't delay. Mm. May comes, and the Taliban starts taking over the rest of the country. They ruled about half of it in the daytime and two-thirds at night for years at that point. But now they are outright marching and taking city after city after city. They had been staying out of the provincial capitals because that's how you get bombed if you seize the provincial capitals, get airstrikes. But now they're going ahead and seizing the provincial capitals. All resistance to them is falling. They're walking right into military bases, killing the commanding officer and letting everyone else go home and, and spreading the rumor that you get to go home. We're not, we're not murdering people. We're letting everybody go home, but don't fight us. We'll kill you then. And so they're just walking right in and just taking over the entire country during this whole time and seizing all the military equipment and the rest of it. So by the time that their guys are evacuating Kabul in at the end of August, they've already given up the Bagram Air Base to the Afghan National Army that immediately turned around and gave it to the Taliban. So now they only have the Kabul airport with its one airstrip to get people out of town. And which is, this is a total disaster. And the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police just completely dissolve. And so they're left with the Taliban walking <laughs> right. right in to Kabul. And now the Taliban are providing security for the Americans. And by the way, I have to say, as far as I understand the situation, I looked at it as close as I can, in good faith, the Taliban were basically attempting to provide security as they were taking over 
the Capitol. They were certainly not telling their men to do anything wrong to the Americans on their way out. But it wasn't the Taliban that attacked. It was ISIS that did it. ISIS that had been a break off of the Pakistani Taliban that you won't be surprised to know the CIA tried to groom to use against the Afghan Taliban that then, of course, ended up becoming much worse than the Afghan Taliban. Now we're relying on the Afghan Taliban to protect their guys mm -hmm. from ISIS. And they couldn't do it. And then, you know, there's the horrible suicide uh, bombing at the airport. And then, according to the, uh, there's a few different versions of this, but apparently they were following a guy around in a white Toyota Corolla. And then they like got distracted at lunch break or something and started following the wrong Toyota Corolla around. And then the guy that they killed, him and his seven children, and I think two other adults, he was trying to get into the United States. He was an aid worker. His entire job was traveling around, giving clean drinking water and soybeans to starving Afghan women and children to mm -hmm. eat and drink, to keep them on the very edge of uh, this edge of life. Um, this, this side of the edge of death, I guess. Uh, and that's who it was that they killed in that drone strike. Um, now, the alternative there is that Biden would have had to say, like as far as leaving all the weapons behind, mm -hmm. and, and really all this, he would have had to say as soon as he came in, this war's already lost. Yeah, I have it. You should have zero confidence in the Afghan National Army or Afghan National Police to hold it together. Therefore, we are destroying all of the weapons. We're not leaving anything behind because the Taliban will get it. We know that they will. We're going to instead destroy all of that stuff. And don't blame me for the Afghan National Army falling apart. Just blame my old boss, Barack mm, Obama, right. for yeah, his that's not massive happen. failed surge, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. And that didn't work. And so, um, and the government in Kabul, it won't be able to stand. The Taliban's going to definitely take over everything. So we're going to evacuate everybody out of there. We couldn't do that. Politically, he couldn't do that, or he certainly decided mm -hmm. not to. He would have been blamed for undermining the Afghan National Army and undermining the Afghan National uh, Government in um, in uh, Kabul. And he would have been blamed for being the reason that they collapsed is because he took all their weapons away and he voted no confidence in them by evacuating the State Department officials and everybody, right? So instead, what does he do? He, he lies. He says, Instead of the war's over, we lost, so we have to leave. He says, the war's over, we won, so now we can <laughs> we leave. And we get to leave, right? We built this great yeah. army that, don't worry, trust me, can mm -hmm. stand. And we built this, you know, great Afghan national government that'll last for years, it'll be fine. And that's why we can leave. And then, so based on that lie, they withdrew and it all went mm. to hell. But could you have done better running the place with my best advice? No. We lost the war. That's yeah. the answer. We had to leave. That's why we had to leave. The war was over. So it, is it the military leaders that are actually like like that would tell either Trump or Biden or in fact Obama or Bush, any of them to say, hey, um, this is what you want to do is not something we're going to do. Yes, it was the responsibility. Well, look, they'll never say, no, we won't do it. Right. They will they their heels and say they they'll say, yes, sir. But they should have said, oh, man, no, don't. This is the worst yeah. idea. And please understand. Let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and Biden knew enough about the war in Afghanistan to know he wanted out of there, dude. You know, he he was a he well, was he tried to campaign on it. Huh? He tried to campaign on the idea of ending the war. They all do. But then they typically yeah. all put us back in war, except Trump. He didn't oh, do but, that. You know, blatantly. I mean, the thing is, on Obama's cabinet, he was the least worst out of all of them on Afghanistan in but 2009. Biden? Yeah. So he wanted to do. He was the vice president then, and he wanted to do what he called a limited counterterrorism mm -hmm. operation, which essentially meant ignore all Afghans, only hunt and kill Arabs and maybe Chechens if you can find any. Um, anybody who doesn't belong, anybody who might be an old friend of Osama, we kill them, and we, but we don't take the fight to the Taliban. We tell them, stay the hell out of our way, maybe. Um, and that was his policy. And that was like the compromise. Okay, we got to do something mm -hmm. for political reasons. So let's do 20,000 troops and focus only on Arabs. That was the least worst option being presented before Obama at the time. No one was saying we got to just cut and run and get the hell out. And Obama did know better than to do that surge. It was purely a political decision that he chose to do that surge. Um, it was the only way he had a deal. He, he had a handshake deal with John McCain and Lindsey Graham that if he would give them the troops that they demanded, that they would leave him alone about it. They would <sighs> shut up and stop attacking him about it. Two and warmongers so, right there. Uh, yep. And it's <clears throat> funny because Obama had soundly defeated John McCain by mm -hmm. like a 10-point spread. And this was one year later. Right. This is November of 09 is when he announced his surge. This is this massive escalation of the war. He really they say he sent 30, he really sent 70,000 troops. He'd already sent 40 by the time they announced mm -hmm. the 30 more. Yeah. Um, but um, he could have given a speech where he said, no, I'm not doing this. And 10 uh, one year ago, I soundly defeated Senator McCain by 10 points because the American people wanted me to call these shots, not him. And that's why I'm calling the exact opposite shot than the one he wants called. And if he doesn't like it, he can go to hell. And if the Secretary of Defense and General Petraeus and General McChrystal don't like it, they can resign and go write articles for the Washington Post about it. Tough. That's what he could have done. He could have said to the American people, isn't this why you elected me? Because I'm less worse on the wars than Hillary and McCain. No, they elected why you elected me. They elected so, him because he was, was true. That is why people turn out. That was the issue more than any other thing. Hillary was bad on Iraq. McCain was bad on Iraq. Obama had opposed it. He was also guaranteeing that Gitmo was going to be shut down. Yeah. Well, that, that's still operating things. today, I think. That's right. And well, he and promised his bigger. slogan was no stupid shit. And then he went and backed Al-Qaeda in three wars in, yeah. in uh, Libya, Syria, and Yemen. So mm -hmm. go yeah. figure that. Uh, you are a contributor to antiwar.com. Is that right? What else do you do there? I'm the editorial director there. Yes, oh. sir. Uh, what's the general um, thrust of that? website well look we are we're rothbardian libertarians we we're founded by justin Romando and antiwar.com and justin was murray rothbard's protege we're essentially ron paul libertarians and um the group was founded in 1995 i came on board about 2004 um i've been a fan since back then and justin died uh back in 2019 mm. but we're carrying on and we've got uh, our great new news editor dave DeCamp. And Kyle Anzalone and a great new crew of guys. 
uh, running the thing. We got all the bad news for you every day <laughs> and written up by our guys who know what the hell they're talking about. And we'll refer you back to that great piece from two weeks ago that explains why the thing they're saying today isn't true and et cetera like that. Yeah. And plus we got the best group of in-house writers, our viewpoint uh, columnists, our regular contributors um, on all things foreign policy. And, and it's been like that since 1995. So it's, you know, bar none to me, the most important project on the internet is antiwar.com. The Scott Horton Show, uh, Just the Interviews, is a podcast feed, which is just the yep. interviews that you do, which uh, you've done a couple of them since 2003. Are you, are you to 6,000 yet? Not quite, right? right. Um, the last I checked, it was 5,930-something. Wow. So it's not quite 6,000, but it has been 20 years. It was April of 03 was when the interview show started. That's incredible. Uh, congratulations on that. That's it, It's an amazing feat. Just, I mean, that number is so staggering, but it also helps give you credibility in that you're not just thinking about this stuff. You're actually talking to people for decades now. Well, that's how I know all this stuff, yeah. right? Is it's the ultimate cheat sheet is yeah. I get not only did I read the news, but then I interview the guy that wrote it and I get to ask whatever follow-up question I want. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's like picking your own college class every day. And then you get to sit at the front <laughs> of the class and interrupt and say, right. what, ask whatever you want and learn whatever you want. So it's, it's great being a radio show, man. You are nothing, writing, nothing you're in the end stages of writing uh, Provoked? How yes, America sir. started um, the new Cold War with Russia? And the catastrophe. Well, I don't know how end stage it is, but I'll tell you, it's a thousand pages, and I already cut about two hundred fifty out, which is now the war itself is now going to be a separate book. Really, and my only saving grace is that as I'm writing it, I have these huge block quotes that mm -hmm. I just love, or because I really would rather show you than tell you. Mm -hmm. But in the edit, all that's got to go, and I know it. So I hope— Just footnote the snot out of it. That's going to save me. And I got—I already have more than 3,000 footnotes. Wow. So um, i that's what's going to save me is I'm just going to have to make claim after claim after claim and then have cite all my sources in the footnotes but not in the prose and— and hope that it's still readable that way. I really would rather do the quotes because especially when it's like, man, look at the Wall Street Can Journal. you believe they just said that? I can't right. believe that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I really would yeah. rather show you, but I, I it's just mm -hmm. nobody's gonna read a book that's that long. So it the it's all gonna come down to the magic of the edit of whether I can get it down to a reasonable length. But basically it's the story of it's it's the enough already of Europe, basically, right? It's the story of how it's all um well, I want to say Jimmy Carter's fault, but really it's all H.W. Bush's fault. Um, from the end of the Cold War, America was already starting the next Cold War with Russia. And so it really was him. And then Bill Clinton and W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden all just made it worse and worse and worse the whole time until it came to this. I mean, that's really the truth of it. And people always talk about how whenever America has to start a war against someone, it's because anything else would be appeasement. Like that time that Neville <laughs> right. Chamberlain didn't yeah. invade Germany over Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, but the thing of it is, is appeasement is really a thing. It's like a strategy of mm -hmm. diplomacy and international relations and this and that. And so that being said, you know, it being a metaphysical concept, it's not something that's only married to America's lesson from Britain's failure at Munich. It's also 
a thing that can be applied, a concept that can be applied by other people and even to us. And I think people will find that it's a much more fair characterization that the Russians have been appeasing the United States of America this whole time. And they finally realized that it just wasn't going to work anymore. And so they drew their line and started the war. So I'll, I'll make this the last and then you can take it where it goes. Um, what stops what's happening in Ukraine right now? Man, that's a great question. Um, um, I really don't know. The Ukrainians run out of men. Uh, is that what we're looking at? Like Russia I mean, literally bulldozes the place? Maybe. I, you know, I, I think, yes, I think they're going to fight until the Ukrainian military is essentially broken and then the Russians can dictate their terms. That's more or less seems to be the way that it's going. I don't know how long that will be. I'm not making those kind of predictions, but I think it's just. What, what it, are the odds? Be, I mean, go ahead. What are the odds American troops officially get on the ground? Yeah, bites your tongue. Listen, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. This is one thing that Biden said that I think he really meant was that he's not going to do that. This, they're not a member of NATO. Yeah, but he's not going to be there very long. You know, I don't know, man. It, honestly, always in motion is the future. And it depends really what the chiefs are telling them, right? Mm -hmm. If the Pentagon is saying to the White House, Look, man, we're not going to fight Russia unless, forget even Poland, dude, NATO schmato. If they come to Germany, then we'll fight them. We're not getting in a nuclear war over no in Ukraine. Yeah. If the chiefs are talking that way to the president, and the, which I think they must be, and I think any president knows that too. They're like, there's just, I mean, to me, they're way over the line of the, you know, pressing their luck here uh, as far as what they're already doing on behalf of Ukraine against Russia. But like really breaking out the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force and U.S. ground troops against them in Ukraine? I don't know, man. I don't think so. so it, I it, think what will happen is the Americans, just like Afghanistan, they'll lose interest and walk away. Is there anything, is there anything to the, the talk that uh, there's that the people in power currently in U.S. government um, have a lot of personal interest in Ukraine, and that is fueling some of this drive? You know, I don't know how, I don't think it's, no, I don't have like uh, a bunch of compelling uh, reason to believe that you have many specific individuals cashing in. I mean, there are some crazy circumstances. I forgot the lady's name, but Max Blumenthal's written a lot about this. It's in the book um, about how under Obama, the lady that they brought in to take over the Ukrainian central bank was like, was this under W. Bush? She's like, a, anyway, I don't know. Of course, there's the Burisma and the Hunter Biden, uh, all of that kind of thing. But that's all very marginal. Mm -hmm. I think the way it really works in the American system, right, is it's not the individuals in government and their direct investments. It's their donors. It's the bureaucrats and donors, oh, right? 
That's right. It's the people yeah. who control. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the the departments themselves are major fiefdoms. So, um, you know, would the American Air Force like to have a permanent base there or something? Sure. You know, that kind of thing. They have those kinds of interests. Um, I guess the Navy would like to replace the Russians at Sevastopol. Um, can't do that without a nuclear war. Um, but then you have Black Rock, for example, and, you know, Cargill and Archer Daniels Midland and Monsanto. These are three major American based multinational agribusiness firms. Mm -hmm. And they already have major investments in Ukraine and would like to improve them and increase them. It used to be illegal for foreigners to buy up Ukrainian land, but all that's all gone now under the American friendly regime there. And you well, have we Black do that Rock. here. Yeah. And you have, you know, these major investment firms and you also have shale oil. You have these major oil companies like Chevron that want to develop the shale and all of that. So those are the interests that control the parties. Mm -hmm. Agribusiness is a major part of the American, you know, lowercase mm -hmm. F fascist system. And, and they have, you know, huge interests in seeing this thing through. And again, always the arms dealers, you know, I even, somebody is talking and saying this to me on, um, on Twitter and he was being a jerk, but I think he might be right. Cause I already thought this myself anyway. So I can't deny it that like, there's a possibility that this is a little bit my fault, right? That like, I tried so hard this whole time to get the message out about the illegitimacy of America's message, uh, uh, America's policy in the Middle East and in specifically in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I wrote this book about Afghanistan, which on some very thin margin made a difference in how the American people feel about that war that may have, you know, in a very small way. Um, I would like to think a bigger way. I don't know, but I don't really, you know. But in some small way, like I may have really helped to build a consensus to get out of Afghanistan. And that might be the major, not the thing I did, but the leaving Afghanistan mm -hmm. might be the major proximate cause of Biden's policy in Ukraine. That I've got to give these guys something. And if I can't pay them off in Afghanistan, I got to pay them off somewhere. We've got to move the war from one place to another. They've got to stay paid. And that's how it works. That's a horrible and, thought. But yikes, if it's true. It's even worse, right? Yeah, it could lead to a nuclear war, dude. Mm -hmm. And it could literally, like, I could literally be playing. And, and look, it's not like it's fair to say, no, we should just stay in the Helmand province and right. just keep murdering Pashtuns who didn't do anything to us forever. They have to be the expendable, you know, uh, lives mm -hmm. to keep us out of major power conflict with Russia and China. I'm not, that's not fair. That, that's not right, you know, but damn, like maybe <laughs> if it leads to a nuclear war, right? Like, shit, sorry, Helmand province. Maybe we should have just stayed there, you know? I don't know. It sucks. Wow. But, but look, I mean, that's how corrupt America is. You know what? I bet you this will be on antiwar.com tomorrow. Well, actually, it might even be on. No, I don't think it's on there today. It might be on there tomorrow. Um, there's this great article in ProPublica about the literal combat ship. You know about that? No. It's a this absolutely ridiculous Navy boondoggle. Literal, not like as in literally, but literal L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, mm -hmm. which is for like 
shallow waters in other people's lands. (laughs) Um, And the things, they just spent a bazillion dollars on this ship and they got two different contractors building it and it's a complete and total piece of crap and it's not fast and it can't do any of its jobs right and the weapons don't swap out like they're supposed to and it's the F-35 of the sea. It's a complete joke. And, um, you know, even that they mention as an aside in this article and they're throwing them out. I mean, they're, they're just trash. They're absolutely useless. Um, so is this, and, is this just money changing hands? That's right. And, and look, they, they point out, it's just a side piece. It's one sentence in the article, a throwaway line that the USS Gerald Ford, the $13 billion USS Gerald Ford mm-hmm. has not reliably proven that it can launch airplanes. What? yet because see they have this new fancy catapult thingy Mm -hmm. but it doesn't work but to tear it out and replace it donald trump was like that's stupid they should do the old kind and everybody was like oh no because now to tear it out and replace it you gotta you're gonna Mm -hmm. ruin the whole damn shit and start over whatever (laughs) they they, they agree and look and then they made it where like the f-35's jet Mm-hmm. Is supposed to land like a Harrier. It yeah. points down uh-huh. and it's supposed to land vertically, mm-hmm. but it'll burn a hole right through the deck. Exactly. It's just too so hard. They got to have a it's whole like a different torch. kind of deck yeah. put on the thing. And just, and then they, the, the F-35 can't talk to the actual tower on the aircraft carrier. They need a whole different computer system to have the thing. So in other words, the American war machine is a government program. And, and in the most corrupt kind of rent seeking way, uh, uh, lowercase f, maybe capital in the case of the war machine, case f fascist program, where there's just no market incentive making anyone do the right thing here at all. It's just stealing. As uh, William S. Lind said, the U.S. military budget is the biggest honeypot in the history of the world. It's a mm-hmm. trillion dollars a year and more, and they just steal. It's so much money. Well, it's and, so big they know. won't they won't look into it. I mean, how long has it been since there's been talk of auditing the Defense Department? Oh, and they can't. I mean, no. they try sometimes yeah. and they can't. There's it's inauditable. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they say, "Well, there's seven trillion dollars missing or three trillion dollars <laughs> missing." I mean, it's not like somebody embezzled that much, like probably one trillion. I don't know. There's a lot of well, with, with that much lot. with that much missing, you could have taken a little bit and be just fine. Seriously, but you know, a lot of it is just very bad accounting and very bad terminology and things, practices you can't get mm-hmm. away with in the market at all. There was actually, I can't remember the terminology anymore, but there was a great article at the Nation magazine a few years back where they explained the guy said, I found the missing trillions of dollars. Here's what it is. They call <laughs> call it this something kind else. Of accounting deficit uh, X, and they call this kind of accounting deficit a Y, and then this is how they finagle the thing and whatever. And it's all just a bunch of, you know. <laughs> They might as well have their own Federal Reserve printing money over there. Right. So that's it. I mean, that's... Wow. Look, for your audience who maybe... Well, if they don't like me, they probably didn't get this far in the interview anyway. But, like, if you... if, If it sounds too goofy or too conspiratorial for you, it should be meaningful. It really should be meaningful. And this is one of the things... You asked me back at the beginning. This is one of the things that really got me when I was still in the 80s, when I was still a kid, like a child. Um, was Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address. Yeah. The military-industrial complex. Yeah. That was the first conspiracy theory I ever heard of. Mm-hmm. The military-industrial complex. What does that mean? Yeah, but coming I mean, from the, the president. The businesses that make the weapons have an interest in keeping the government yeah. at war. Yeah. And then, I don't know, but then what's the next thing you find out? 
The guy who coined the phrase was Dwight David Eisenhower, the five-star army general, (laughs) the commander of all allied forces in Europe Mm -hmm. in World War II, and and two-term Republican president of the United States of America, winner of the most patriotic man of the 20th century award or whatever you got, right? And then he was the one on his last day in office. He goes, I wasn't able to stop them. Good luck to you guys. Which is but, fascinating because I don't think anyone in this era of politics would have the courage to say that out loud. Trump, in fact, did, although he flip-flopped all over the place. Right, but yeah. he, one thing that's so great about Trump is everything he says is such hyperbole, <laughs> right. right? He won't just say that, like, <laughs> yeah. listen, there are some, in fact, he doesn't say anything cautiously ever, right? So it's not, <laughs> yeah. there are some interests who have interest in the thing. He's like, let me tell you something. The military industrial complex, they love war. They love it because they make money off it. Money. And like, he did say that. I mean, you can find that. And there, I got, in fact, in enough already for my Donald Trump chapter begins with two quotes of him denouncing the military industrial complex. <laughs> and then the third quote is him saying, we want Lockheed and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman to make a lot right. of money and be really successful. They're our very favorite uh-huh. guys in America, blah, blah, blah. So that's who he is. ScottHorton.org. Uh, all over. Are, are you on the X, the X Twitter? Um, yes, sir. I'm Scott Horton show on there. Fair warning. Um, not everybody likes what they see. But. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you're also on the radio, correct? Anti-war radio? Yeah, I'm on the radio in L.A. on Thursdays. In fact, um, 90- during this interview, I was on the radio in L.A. Um, oh. on KPFK, which is left-wing radio out there, but keeping them anti-war as I can. Hey, you know what? They were the original anti-war group, weren't they? Yeah. Well, what? and I mean, the station is Pacifica Radio, and it's not named after the ocean. ScottHorton.org is is the website to find all things Scott Horton. Thanks again for hanging out, Scott. Uh, I feel like we have a lot more that we could have discussed. So hopefully we'll do this again someday. Um, ScottHorton.org, Antiwar.com, and LibertarianInstitute.org. Check out his books. And if you're in the L.A. area, Antiwar Radio. 90.7 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. Remember the interview podcast.org where you can help support this show and find all the rest of the conversations that are here. Uh, also remember that you can go uh, find us on the fountain app. You can also uh, boost there. Tell more people about it. Share it around. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate all our listeners and all the support we get. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. We'll see you on the next one.